Good morning. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we are in this series, Long Story Short. Uh, if you've uh, been here over this few weeks, we started this in September, and we'll be making our way all the way through uh, all of the Bible uh, by the uh, Christmas season. And so what that means is we're going to be moving quickly, and we're going to be doing that uh, this morning as well, certainly. Uh, when we started this series, we, we opened up with a John Eldridge quote that he says, life you'll notice is a story. And so We've been telling the story because when you get up in the morning each day, uh, life is not a mathematical equation that you're able to substitute different things in and know how your day will go or know how things will go. It's not a recipe uh, that you just put in the oven and bake it a certain way and you'll know exactly how things will turn out. It just doesn't work that way. Life is a story and you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't get to know. You have to enter in. It's all about uh, the journey. And so there's an old quote uh, that I've, I saw all over Pinterest. I looked for the actual uh, beginning of this quote. I couldn't find it, but you've heard it before. Life is a journey, uh, not a destination. And so I, actually, I hope that you believe that. I hope that you understand that to be true and you've experienced that. And it's all about the journey. It's all about uh, really life is all about moving forward and, and the things that we experience. And that's really the essence of life is that journey of getting there. Uh, as a family... Uh, we, uh, there's this uh, just value that we, we, we have is that adventure is going to be a family value for our family. There are things that we want to be able to do, things that we really believe that, that would be best experienced if our kids can have a sense of adventure, uh, that we would stretch them, stretch ourselves in the process. Uh, last night, Aaron and I were invited, uh, one of our local churches here, the chapel, Uh, has something called Kingdom Come Weekend. And in that Kingdom Come Weekend, they highlight a lot of their church partners in the region. We talk about church planting for the region, both locally and globally. And they're a large church, and so there's a lot of different entities uh, that are there. But because of our involvement uh, in church planting over the years and our involvement for what uh, we're doing with missions, we get invited to that banquet each year. And it's just so neat to be able to go and to be able to talk to people who are overseas doing uh, God's work and at the same time a lot of local partners and different pastors and different things. It's, it's kind of a homecoming for us all to be able to come there. And one of the pastors of the chapel, he, Ryan is his name, and he, he and I were standing off to the side and talking and he said, uh, because of your kind of prompting uh, through social media and some of the other things, he said, this summer there was two different weeks that uh, my wife was away. And so I decided that if uh, adventure was going to be a family value in our house, that I was going to take my kids uh, camping. And so because of that, uh, because of your social media, whatever, and, and, and whatever, I got like six people that look at what's going on in social media. And so he was one of them. And so that worked out. And so uh, he said, we went camping, and, and it actually went pretty well, and so thanks for challenging me to do that. And we had a good laugh about some of the difficulties uh, he had in relation to that. Uh, Brian Long preached last week here, and he talked about uh, from when it comes to camping, when it comes to going out and doing those things, you have to acknowledge that when you're first getting started, uh, it's, it's usually pretty hairy. It's usually pretty dicey. And, and again, the adventure is usually in what went wrong, not what went Right. Uh, very rarely do you tell a good story about how everything went so smoothly. That just isn't, there's not really a story behind that. So uh, for us, we, we've started camping and doing different things like that. And, I know, and you don't have to do that. I'm just telling you that that's what we've done. And, and for my wife and I, when we first uh, started, uh, we decided we were going to go camping together. Uh, the time that we went, it rained. And so we had no real rain plan. And so what that meant was when it rained, that meant that we thought we were going to do all of our cooking over an open fire, which now all of the wood uh, was soaking wet. And I, of course, the patient person that I am, uh, dealt with that really well in the process of trying to get a fire started. So now we were cold, we didn't have anything to eat, and we didn't have a fire, and we were uh, disgruntled with each other, to say the least. And we also had a two-week-old puppy uh, in the process and all of that, and the dog kept getting into stuff and whatnot. So that was our first experience. It didn't go terribly well. Uh, so that was our first experience as a couple. And then a few years later, uh, our first experience bringing the kids along. And Delia's here uh, this morning. Now she gets to be in the adult service as a, as a sixth grader. So um, when we went camping for the first time, Delia, like we had slept out from, it had been fine, totally fine with Aaron and I. Uh, in a tent, but when we brought Delia along, 
uh, she would not sleep on the ground because it was just so, she was like princess in the pea. If there was any, any little pebble, any little thing whatsoever, uh, she would not sleep. And so she screamed for hours and hours and hours. And so uh, the next morning we went to Walmart and we bought ourselves some air mattresses and things have been fine ever since. But that first, that first experience, my goodness, child, um, <laughs> it wasn't a great experience. So then as we kind of progressed in the process, we decided to bring another family uh, into the mix. Now our family had started to figure it out and we told this other family, uh, the Andersons is their last name, that they were coming with us. And we said, hey, uh, kind of the same thing, like your disclaimers, your first time out, it probably isn't going to go real well. Just stick through it and we'll, we'll have a good time together. And, and uh, they had, we stayed for three nights. Uh, the first night, uh, their son uh, wet the bed, but wet the bed on dad's pillow is what ended up happening. And so, and he cried all night long and they had a miserable experience. And, and, and so that was night number one. And so like night number, the morning after we, we put all the stuff and hung it in trees and dried it all out as well as we could. And then uh, at dinner time, uh, night number two, it started raining. And so we were all under uh, this canopy and, and made our dinner and our meal there. And so it rained cats and dogs. And then we go to go to bed. And what ended up happening was that their tent leaked. And so ours was perfectly fine, but their tent had just filled with water. And so at about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, as we're trying to go to bed, uh, the Andersons decided, uh, when he came out of the tent and took what had day number one been a urine-filled pillow, now day number two was a rain-filled pillow, and he was actually wringing out his pillow outside of the tent. And uh, that family that night gave up, and they said, we're going home, and to see my buddy Matt trying to take a tent whole and just push it into <laughs> the back of the minivan. Um, he had to work through it. Like, it's, it wasn't his best moment. And if you've been camping, it wasn't uh, ours as well. But this summer we had an incredible stay. We got to stay at Watkins Glen. And if you've ever been there before, it's just a beautiful park. I'd never been there. It's actually not that far away. Uh, we went with the Graphams. We had a great time with them. Uh, you can ask them. They had some good first learning experiences camping uh, separate from us. That was their own journey. And then they, you know, we eventually kind of came together and camped together. For me, it was... Watkins Glen was a specific memory I had as a child, so it was kind of neat to go back to Watkins Glen because it was my only memory as a child uh, camping. In 1983, uh, I was two years old at the time and my sister was an infant, and we went to Watkins Glen. And I have, you know how you don't really have memories, but you have like glimmers of memories from when you were that young? And so I remember going camping, and there's a few reasons why I remember it. So we arrived there after dark. We got there much later than we were supposed to. And so now mom is less than pleased with dad, the fact that we've arrived after dark and we have to set up the tent in the dark. And my dad, the night before, he rode a motorcycle. And the night before, he had hit a dog on a motorcycle and had gotten in a little motorcycle wreck. And so he was all bruised up. Uh, he had cuts all over his body. He was in pain. And he was on a large amount of codeine uh, from what I've been explained to since. And so what ended up happening is we get there late. We set up the tent. Uh, and if you've ever been to Watkins Glen, uh, they were at the KOA uh, campground. We set up the tent and everything seemed fine until the middle of the night. We realized that the tent is only 20 yards away from a train track that goes next to the campground. And my dad, in the state that he was with on the drugs that he was on, that type of thing, when that train came through in the middle of the night, he literally thought that they had set up the tent on the train tracks. And so my two-year-old memory is of my dad climbing the sides, trying to tear his way out of the tent. The re I don't know if that meant that he was going to go out and, what, was he going to go stop the train or was he going to run away and leave his family in the tent uh, for the train to come through. But that is literally the only time I think that we ever went camping as a family. That was it. 1983, it stopped. It was all over. So anyway, there's a couple of stories about camping. But the reality is, is that because we as a family enjoy camping, uh, many people 
uh, assume that I know something or anything about wilderness survival. So there's a big difference between family camping and wilderness survival. And so wilderness survival uh, is something that is entirely different. You would assume that I would know how to rub two sticks together and have a fire just suddenly pop into existence. That is not something that you want me for or that uh, if I've got shoestrings that I can go down to the, to the creek and, you know, snatch a trout out of the creek and eat it. Like that's just not who I am. That's not really, and, and I assume because I was in the Marine Corps that uh, just send me out into the desert with with dental floss and, you know, worms to eat, and I'll be fine for the next, you know, 40 days. It's just not, that's not who I am. The reality is, is that survival in the wilderness is something that takes a very specific expert in that. We see the word, we see the word wilderness in Scripture over 300 times in Scripture. And so today the message is called The Wilderness. We're talking not as much about the geography of the wilderness, although it's very real. Uh, in Israel, the wilderness is right on the outskirts of almost every city in that region. No matter where you are in Israel, there's, there's a city that has a water source, and after that it is the desert. It is the wilderness. And so we're going to go today, we're going to talk through wilderness survival and, and, it, and it realizing that it's not really a geography matter, it's a matter of the heart. And so many of you are here this morning and when I talk about wilderness and the way that it connects to uh, the characters in the Bible that we realize that many of you are here this morning and you are going through the wilderness. And going through the wilderness means that you are in a dry place. You are in a place where it does not seem that there is hope. You do not know how long you can last in this place. You do not know where God is. You don't know, understand why he's allowing you to go what you are going through. When Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, that trip is supposed to take 11 days, but it takes 40 years, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so what we're going to do this morning with this series, long story short, we are going to cover a ton of territory. So try to stay with me as we are going through this. Uh, we're actually going to cover just 600 years. That's all we're going to try to cover uh, this morning. But as we do that, we're going to cover from when uh, Isaac was born in 2050 B.C. Uh, all the way up until Moses and the Ten Commandments in 1450 uh, B.C., somewhere in that range. And so we're covering about 600 years. And in doing that, we want to talk about and look at these characters say, what do they know about the wilderness? Because many of them in geography, they were in the wilderness. But there was also a wilderness of the soul that they were going through as well. And character by character of what you see in Scripture, there's one or two things that each one of them, if I had them this morning, I'd be able to line them across the platform, that they would want you to know about the wilderness that you are going through. So as we ask that question, what are the most important reminders for wilderness survival? If I had each of these men and women across the stage this morning, what would be the one thing, if I said you get to answer this question one way, what would be a reminder that you would have for our people this morning when it comes to wilderness survival. I believe that's where we will end up here this morning. Dear Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we're going to move very quickly through it. Lord, I pray that it would speak clearly today. There are many here that are in the wilderness spiritually, emotionally. Uh, Lord, they're struggling through many things. In a room of this size, there are some serious issues uh, going on here this morning. Maybe they are here today only because they're in the wilderness, and that's the only reason why they came here today. They're going through a very difficult time. Lord, let there be something in this message. Let there be a reminder of who you are and how that speaks into our lives and into our culture. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. If you're using that black pew Bible in front of you, it's actually on page 21. So that's going to be an easy one for you to find there uh, this morning. Genesis chapter 21. The first reminder we have this morning, and it's going to come from Abraham and Sarah, is this. And it's a fill-in for you if you're using that white sheet of paper in your bulletins. When it seems like he waits too long, God is right on time. When it seems like he waits too long, God is right on time. We left off with Abraham in the covenant last week, and we find that God has told Abraham that he is going to have many nations, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. Those will be all the generations that will follow 
Abraham. And so for better or for worse, as we talk about when we do a, a wedding ceremony, for richer or for poorer or for better or for worse, Abraham and Sarah have gone through tremendous uh, significant trials in their life, for better or for worse. There's much that they have gone through as a couple. But the one thing that just seems to be hanging out there that they just cannot seem to understand why God, who has promised them uh, nations to follow, is that they cannot have a child. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we hear this. We say, for the Lord kept his word, it says here. And we don't have the assumption that he wouldn't have kept his word, but there's this affirmation here that the Lord has kept his word and did for Sarah exactly as he had promised. Verse 2, she became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. God had said that they would have a child. They didn't have to be told that they were going to have a child in their old age. And so old age for them was almost 100 years old. And they had said that she was going to have a child. And look at this, verse 3. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse a new baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. If you know the story, she laughed at the concept, the idea, even the thought of having a child. And so now this baby in her old age that is born to them, what does it do? It brings her laughter. It would seem that she was far too old. It would seem that it was way too late for God, that he had waited just a little bit too long, and yet he showed up right on time. The baby was born, and his name was Isaac. Now, if this was a TV series, a TV drama had been going on uh, for even years, this is the eighth season, this is how all of the TV series would end, in this climactic moment when Isaac is born. This is what we've been waiting for, the child that generations would be born from. But there comes additional chapters to the story. Genesis chapter 2 is when Isaac is offered to God as a sacrifice. If you remember, Isaac and, and Abraham are going to where they were going to provide a sacrifice before the Lord. And Isaac, the son now, he's a little bit older, he's able to walk, he's able to talk, he's able to interact with his father. And he says, Father, uh, where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. Because God had told him that this was going to be his son, that the, the generations were going to come from Isaac. And yet he had asked him and requested of him to offer his son as a sacrifice. Verse 9, Genesis chapter 22, verse 9, it says this. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood on it. <coughs> then, in obedience, he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Now, I am moving quickly this morning, but we cannot just dismiss the importance of of the baby being born. We cannot dismiss even the, the craziness or what it would possibly take for a father to be able to put his son on, on this altar and say, God, he is yours, to the point of raising his own knife to offer his son as a sacrifice on the altar. At that moment, wouldn't it seem like now it's too late? But at that moment... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on that boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then, verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. When it seemed like God had waited just a little bit too long, when it seemed like, God, you had this great plan, but you didn't act on it, then God acted. And in that moment, what does he do? He acts in a way that only could be demonstrated by the providence of God. 
that there would be no other explanation for what happened there on that hill than that God had intervened and that God had demonstrated the power that he had to be able to interact with Abraham in a very personal way. We find out later that Abraham called that mountain, called that place, the Lord will provide. He had alluded to it when he said, we're going to go to the mountain and God will provide a lamb. And then uh, as they're standing there and and God stops him, the angel stops him from committing uh, this act of sacrificing his son. What's immediately what he sees in the thicket is God had provided. What's the most important reminder from wilderness survival? When it seems like he waits too long, God is right on time. The second reminder is this. When it seems like he is too far away, God comes close. When it seems like he is too far away, God comes close. As we move forward, we, we learn that Isaac, he, he marries and, and is about to have children. He wants to have children. You find there's this, this similar process that had happened just like his uh, parents, Abraham and Sarah, had gone through. And when you look to this, you see... Uh, in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 25. So if you jump there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, we see Isaac pleading with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. So we're back to the same process of God. You promised many nations in our family. You promised this. And yet it seems like you have have dismissed us and forgotten about us and just left us here in oblivion. And yet when you're so far away, he comes Close. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. We have a few ladies in the room that are pregnant. Uh, when my wife was pregnant, there was no question that personal space just becomes very ambiguous. You go through the checkout lane and all of a sudden someone comes up behind you and says, Oh, I love touching mama's bellies. And you're like, What is the matter with you? Right? There's something very, very close and very personal. All of a sudden, God, who seems so far away, comes very close and very personal and allows her to be pregnant. Look at what they say here as well, verse 22. But the two children, the twins, struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Isn't this interesting as this uh, chapter unfolds? First, Isaac, when he is calling out to God, he's pleading to God. And now, as Rebecca is, is struggling, what is going on inside of me? What does she do? She says, I don't understand. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? Some of you are here this morning and you have said these very words this week, maybe this morning. Why is this happening to me? And the Lord said unto her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And as the chapter goes forward, we fast forward in their lives, and we find Jacob and Esau. Esau being a name just demonstrating the word red. His skin was red. There was red on his, he was a hairy red hunter who was just a wilderness man as it was. And we find him coming back from out hunting, and he's hungry. He hasn't found anything. And so what he does is he is desperate for a meal, and Jacob is a chef in the kitchen. And Jacob deviously trades with him for a bowl of soup for his birthright. He says, Esau, you are the oldest, and you have something coming to you, this birthright that is coming to you because you're the oldest. And for a bowl of soup, Esau dismisses and devalues all that had been given to him by Isaac over a bowl of soup, setting up the fact that the older would serve the younger. And even going further than that, we read about how Abraham, excuse me, how Isaac sits down with Jacob thinking that he is Esau and tricks again. Uh, Jacob is able to trick him into uh, the blessing from Isaac as well. So not only does he have the birthright now, he also has the blessing. And so what happens is he runs to a faraway land. Now that he's got the birthright and the blessing, he's got all that he can take, all that he can uh, extract from this family. Now Jacob has for himself and he runs away. And we see him in a faraway land with a man named Laban who's just as devious and cunning as he is. He's met his match. 
And in that process, through the years that he spends there working for him, he starts to grow a family and wants to make his way back home. And he is terrified of his older brother Esau. And so when it seems like he is too far away, now perhaps because of Jacob's own doing, God is a long ways away because he has left him and gone to this faraway country and and done his own thing and ruined all of what was going on in that family. He is far, far away. And Jacob is struggling. He wants to come back and he's not sure. There's a prodigal son type of atmosphere here. And as he is coming back, he is afraid of Esau and what will be waiting for him. It would seem to be certain death waiting for him. And so he sends gifts ahead, and he sends uh, his family ahead, and he sends servants ahead, and he sends everybody ahead to make sure that Esau would see the family and see all of those things, and perhaps this would pacify Esau from his anger and from his wrath. And just as he is about to cross the river, and just as he is about to find out what is going on with Esau, God, who seems so far away, once again comes very, very close and comes close enough to touch and interact with him in an individual and personal way. Verse 22 of Genesis chapter 32, we find Jacob wrestling with God. Verse 22, during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob alone in the camp, and the man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of the socket. Then the man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel. This is a very much a representation of what is going on in the wilderness of Jacob's soul. This, this tension, this struggle, this wrestling. Because he's saying I, the, he already had the birthright and the blessing, and yet he's, he's wrestling with this man who he perceives to be an angel or even God himself. As he is wrestling with him, he says, bless me, bless me. Because there is something that he is lacking. He, he is just unable to be able to come to grips <coughs> with the fact that he is a liar. He is devious. And that's what his name, Jacob, means. So when the man asks, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob, with his head hung and his eyes cast down. He says, my name is Jacob, for I am a liar. My name is Jacob, for I am a sinner, I am devious, I am conniving, I am a crook, I am a villain. And he says, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel. Israel, which means father of nations or nation builder. Those two are very different things. So this understanding that God, who seems so far away, And so distant. And and Jacob knew he was at fault for running and conniving and, and ruining that relationship. God came close. He came close with his mother, Rebecca, when he came close and allowed her to have these children. Then he came close again with Jacob and changed his life, changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And now he would be the father of many nations. What are the important reminders for wilderness survival? When it seems like he waits too long, God is right on time. When it seems like he is too far away, God comes close. The third reminder, when it seems like evil is winning, God has the final say. When it seems like evil is winning, God has the final say. Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We meet Joseph. Joseph is Israel's son, Joseph. He is one of these 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph has a special gift. Joseph has the ability to have dreams that foretell the future. And one of the dreams that he has is this dream, and it's a reoccurring dream, where all of the family said, will be bowing down to me. And Joseph was Israel's favorite son. And he gave him this coat of many colors, 
Uh, and, and so he would represent and would demonstrate that he was the favored one. And now he's having these dreams about all of his family bowing down to him, and his 11 brothers hated it. And so what we find here is their evil hearts coming to light. Verse 23 of Genesis chapter 37. Joseph is coming out to meet them in the field. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. They had had just enough of this young boy's attitude. They had had enough of their father favoring him. They had had enough. Verse 24, they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern or a well. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So now Joseph... The evil that has taken over his brother's hearts is to, to knock him down, to beat him up, to tear his cloak off of him, and to throw him into this well and leave him for dead. One of them does say, you know what, we would have to, it's not out of the goodness of his heart, it says we would have to know how to cover up this crime to make sure we don't get busted. So instead, if we have no evidence, if there's no shred of evidence, then we are not found liable. And so let's send him off with the Ishmaelite traders to trade him into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph, who is there in Egypt, he is, it would seem that evil is winning, and yet as he is there in Egypt, uh, he finds the favor of Potiphar, one of the, the big owners in Egypt. And so he becomes head of household for this man Potiphar, only to find, as you know, if you know the story, that Potiphar's wife becomes jealous of him, and she lies about him, and he is thrown into prison. It seems as though evil is winning, that Joseph, someone who has God's heart, that evil is just choking him out. And then we find in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph has been brought up into a position of authority because there is famine in the land. He is brought there because he has been able to speak into what is going on. He has the intelligence. God has given him wisdom of how to handle this uh, this regional problem of a famine. And wouldn't you know that the very brothers that had traded him into slavery to make that trip to Egypt in shame and enslaved and sold out by his own brothers are now making that trip to Egypt to meet with who they think is one of Pharaoh's top, top guys. And it's none other than their brother Joseph. Chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him. The word quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. He said, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there right in front of them. And he says, please come closer. So they came close. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your very lives. The evil that had taken over their hearts, what they had planned, Joseph later says, what you had planned for evil, God had meant it for good. And this process of what it seemed like evil had taken over, and when it seemed like the days were so dark, you know that when he was in the darkness of that well, Joseph is looking around going, how could this have happened to me? How, God, are you allowing evil to do these things? When he is in the jail cell, not just once, but multiple times, thrown into that jail cell again and again, and Joseph is saying, how is it, God, that you have allowed this to happen to me? It seems like evil is victorious. And yet, at the end of his life, he is able to say, God, you meant it for 
good. When it seems like evil is winning, God has the final say. What are the important things to remember for wilderness survival? Remember number four. When it seems like he let things fall apart, God is at work putting things back together. When it seems like he let things fall apart, God is at work putting things back together. So Joseph has brought all of the the family of Israel, all the 12 brothers and his father, they've been brought there to Egypt. And now Pharaoh gets a hardened heart against these people. And he realizes that if he enslaves them and he, he continues to work the Hebrews, that he is able to, to keep them oppressed. He's able to control and to keep them from growing to a point where they might take over Egypt. And so as he is doing that, he oppresses them again and again and again. And it is a very dark place and a dark day for those people there in Egypt. It would seem as though Joseph, who had brought all the family together, and finally there had been reconciliation, that now it would seem that that had been a mistake. Why had I brought all my people here and generations later just to be enslaved? In Exodus chapter 3, we find the calling of Moses. So Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. <coughs> One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro to the priest of Midian. He led the flock into what? The wilderness and came to Sinai, circle Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. And the chapter proceeds, and God talks talks to Moses through this burning bush. Again, what would seem to be all the pieces falling apart, a, a bush burning ought to fall apart, ought to crumble to the ground. And Moses in amazement is looking at it and saying, God, when I look around, our people are oppressed. And, and, and God is telling him, I have heard the cries of your people and I am sending you, Moses, to be the deliverer. I am looking at all of these pieces that appear to be broken and I'm going to put them back together through you and send you back to your people to be their deliverer. And so he does that. He sends Moses back to Egypt and through things like the Passover and the plagues, he, he rescues his people and he, he combats against Pharaoh, the, the strongest army, the strongest leader of that day. And God is victorious again and again and again and the people flee Egypt. And for generations and generations, even today, that celebration of the people being freed from the oppression in Egypt. And then they find themselves again in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 2. Moses, who has led them across the Red Sea, Moses, who has brought them out from the oppression of the Egyptians, now stands with his people in the wilderness. They're being fed by day, by manna, and every week they're having the quail is being fed to them. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up there at the base of Mount Sinai. Sound familiar? Then Moses climbed to the mountain to appear before God. The people are beginning to turn on him. They are in the wilderness. They are murmuring. They are complaining. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. See how he calls them the family of Jacob? That word again. Those deceitful people, the family of Jacob. That that lying, conniving, conniving people. He's reminding them of who he has changed them to be. No, you are the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and and you know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And as Moses is there on the mountain once again at Mount Sinai, you see this, this crumbling, this breaking of all the pieces falling apart. God is putting them back together. He's bringing things back together. 
In chapter 20 of Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments. And wouldn't you know, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments in his hand, the people have crumbled once again before him. And what does he do? He literally throws down the tablets he got from God, and they shatter into pieces in front of him. Isn't that a good illustration of what is happening to the very people? They have the word from God in his hands, and it crumbles in front of him. And what happens? But God writes it down again and gives them again this covenant. Verse 5, it says, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. If you keep my covenant, he says. But Moses was not going to be able to keep that covenant. The people of Israel would not be able to and could not keep that covenant. You and I, with all of Scripture in front of us, of all of what we know to see how God has interacted, you and I would not keep that covenant any differently than they do. So how do we survive the wilderness? We move very quickly through these characters and through these passages, and we see God at work. And yet, in the wilderness, we get lost. In the wilderness, we, we, we're confused. We're, we, we don't know what to do, and it just feels like, as I said, all the pieces have crumbled apart. And God says, the thing that is going to bring it back together is this covenant. And yet we can't keep it. He said, as you look around and everything's falling apart, all you have to do is keep the covenant, and yet I know that you won't be able to keep it. So what will be the solution for the wilderness? a video that demonstrates this pretty well. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant, is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partner. 
And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. That's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. I think that video demonstrates really well what is going on with the brokenness that we see around us in the wilderness that we are experiencing. The reality is, is we are lost in the wilderness without Jesus Christ. What is the long story short? The long story short is this. God made a way out of no way out. There is no hope. There is no opportunity. There is no way that this covenant is going to be fulfilled. When you look through all of these characters that are in the wilderness, they're saying, the only way out of this is God coming close. The only way out of this is God putting things back, to, back together because there is no way out other than that. So God made a way out of no way out. Jesus is the way. In John chapter 14, says this, verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If you were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Isn't that the voice of someone who's in the wilderness? God is saying there is a place. Jesus is saying there is a place in heaven with the Father that I have for you. Just like the covenants and just like this relationship with a holy God, it can be mended. There is a place for you. I have been working on it, and, and you can go there. And yet Thomas says, I don't get it. We don't know. How are we going to get there? We have no idea where we are going. How can we find out why? And that's the very spot that we are in, if that's where you are this morning, of being in the wilderness, is that you have no idea how to get out of that wilderness. You have no idea how to fix the problem that you are in. And what each one of us needs to remember is that without surrendering to a holy God, we will not have any idea how to get out of that. Verse 6, he says, we don't know how to get there. How do we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man will come unto the Father except through me.
When it seems like he waits too long, God is right on time. When it seems like he is too far away, God is close. When it seems like evil is winning, God has the final say. When it seems like things are falling apart, God is putting back things back together. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you're here this morning, you came here looking for some answer, looking for some thought, some magical pill that would get you through this week, it's Jesus. There is no other answer. There is no other alternative. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you can try to work hard, and you can try to live a moral life, and you can try to do all that you can to bring your family together, but your family will never come together without Jesus Christ. Your family will never know the power of God throughout Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father except through me. And what that video demonstrated of the end, the way that the end shows up is one day we gather around that second tree as people who are united with God because of Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads to me this morning? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done. We, we covered a lot of ground this morning, Lord, but, but the theme is consistent all the way through Scripture. As we, as humankind, break the covenant, we break the relationship, we ruin things again and again and again. And those people's names that we read about in the Old Testament, they could very much be you and me and would be. Our only hope is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are a fallen people. And Lord, there are some here this morning that are well aware of the wilderness that they're living in. And they're trying to fill that gap with religion, trying to fill that gap with the running around of enjoying what this world has to offer. They're trying to fill that gap with money, trying to fill that gap with activities. And yet, Lord, that gap will only be filled. That relationship will only be stored through your Son, Jesus. Lord, I can call to action this morning, but I know that you are far more powerful than I am. So, Lord, we ask through the Holy Spirit that your Son, Jesus, would draw people to himself this morning. We pray, Lord, that it would be obvious that you were at work here today, restoring relationships, restoring that connection between a holy God and a fallen man, that that would be happening in this room this morning. We love you and praise you for who you are. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. As things fall apart, you have put them back together. And we thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning as we sing to close? I will be directly in the back this morning. I would love to talk to any of you who want to know what that answer is in Jesus Christ. I'd love to connect those dots for you. If you are chasing anything else, you will find that the pieces continue to break and scatter. Wouldn't you come and meet Jesus today?